Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Choices. I am your host, Kim. The story that I am bringing you today, although tragic and a bright light of life that was snuffed out too early in a young child that had to grow up without his mum, there is hope in this case that advances in DNA and other forensic testing is making the perfect murder more and more impossible to get away with, which is a really good thing for those of us that don't, nor do we have any plans to murder someone. Not such good news for murderers out there thinking they got away with it. This is the murder of Barbara Brodkin. Feisty and vibrant, Barbara Bodkin was born April 24, 1954 in Toronto. I wasn't able to find as much information as I would have liked to on Barbara, but she did have a very wide circle of friends, lots of acquaintances, and no one had anything bad to say about her at all. She had married Christopher Berry in 1983, but they had later divorced in 1991, and they had a son named Zachary. By the early spring of 1993, Barbara was living alone with Zachary in the Davisville area of Toronto in an apartment on 155 Belloway Street. She worked as a secretary, and to supplement her income, she sold a little bit of pot on the side, which she kept in an antique cosmetics box in her closet. As she sold only to people that she knew well, she certainly wasn't a big-time drug dealer, just more supplier to the local soccer moms kind of thing. She was a well-kept woman despite her meager earnings, and she dressed well, usually had her makeup done, and unfortunately, that's all I really know about Barbara. Uh, There were some other details on a YouTube video that I found on the case, but to be honest, a lot of it sounded like it was just kind of made up to make the story a little bit more robust. 
But I do know that she divorced Christopher um, at some time before 1993, and he was known to have been, if not violent, at least kind of stalkerish with her. On the morning of March 19th, 1993, little Zachary was six years old, and he woke up to discover that his mom hadn't woken him up for school or had made him breakfast that morning. And he went into her bedroom and found her laying partially inside her bedroom closet with a lot of blood coming from her chest. He was a smart kid and he knew to call 911 right away to try to help his mom. The call came in at 7.53 a.m., only seconds after Zachary's traumatic discovery. But unfortunately, when the ambulance and police arrived, it was too late to save the 41-year-old single mom and Barbara was deceased. It was a small apartment, so it was a bit cluttered. And beside the closet door was the washing machine. And there was kind of like a TV table being used as a place to put her typewriter. So a lot of furniture and stuff for a small space. So it was kind of hard for them to tell what was out of order. But her bedroom did appear to have hosted a bit of a struggle. Barbara had died from a single stab wound to the chest, but there had been evidence of strangulation before the stabbing. They estimated she died in the early morning hours of the 19th. The stash of pot, including the box that she kept it in, was gone, and she only had about $12 in her wallet. Um, So robbery was suspected potentially by one of her clients who knew where she kept her drugs in the cash. Uh, But also her ex-husband, Christopher, was high on the suspect list. According to a friend of Chris's, he had threatened her before and had told him that he wanted to stage a break-in and to take care of drugs and cash just to get back at her. Zachary had been questioned and did mention that he had woken up on the evening of March 18th to see his mom visiting with a guy that he described as tall and skinny with long hair to his shoulders. But Zachary never mentioned that he recognized him. Like, had he been Christopher, he likely would have said that he knew him. Six-year-olds aren't the best eyewitnesses, so they figured the most likely scenario was that Christopher had maybe sent someone to take care of Barbara. Christopher was interrogated four times by the Toronto police, but maintained his story, that he was with his girlfriend on the night of the murder, and then she corroborated that story. There is some reports that say that he also passed a lie detector test, but again, I can't confirm that as fact. However, none of his fingerprints was found in the apartment, but according to the then-detective Stacy Gallant, during the months that followed the murder, canvases for witnesses, examination of evidence, polygraphs, photographs, phone records, banking records, and over 100 persons were interviewed at the time. Based on the fact that there were no signs of forced entry, investigators felt strongly that whoever had killed her had known her, and it wasn't someone that she was afraid of and she had actually invited in. But Barbara had fought with whoever the killer was. She was, after all, remembered by her ex-husband as feisty, and he admitted to having a few physical altercations with her. The police extracted some skin and material from under Barbara's nails, but being that it was 1993, DNA was just kind of becoming a thing, and the profile didn't match anyone in the system, which admittedly wasn't much of a system back then. In 1993, DNA was still often seen as nothing more than junk science, and it had only been in 1987 when DNA evidence was first brought up in a courtroom uh, in the conviction of Colin Pitchfork for the rape and murder of 15-year-old Don Ashworth in the UK uh, by using a six-week process that isolated DNA fragments into bands. That's just a little factoid there for you. In 1993, DNA didn't even get tested unless there was a suspect and a blood sample from the suspect. 
in this case, Christopher, who was not a match. Uh, and it was used more to exclude suspects, again, in this case, Christopher, rather than identify one. POTUS, or Combined DNA Index System, wasn't even started until 1998. So a lot of challenges with finding a proper suspect when everyone pretty much attested to loving Barbara and no one really having any kind of beef with her. So unfortunately, Barbara's case went cold, and every few years, the cold case detectives would run a press release for more information. On Friday, March 19, 1993, at approximately 7.53 a.m., a 911 call came in from a six-year-old boy who found his mother dead in their apartment. Emergency services were dispatched to an apartment building at 155 Beloyal Street. Police located the lifeless body of 41-year-old Barbara Brodkin in the apartment with the young boy. The cause of death was a stab wound to the chest. A criminal investigation commenced and extensive investigative resources were poured into this investigation. It was believed at the time that the victim may have been the subject of a robbery. A quantity of cash and marijuana was missing from the apartment. Anyone who knew Barbara that did not speak to the police during the original investigation is asked to contact cold case investigators. You may hold the key to this investigation. You may not even know it. Investigators spoke with dozens of people in relation to this investigation. Perhaps they did not speak to you. It has been over 25 years since this murder occurred. The young boy that found his mother dead in their own apartment would now be 31 years old. It's time to step up and help solve this case. If you want to remain anonymous, that's okay. Contact the cold case investigators with any information you think is valuable to this investigation. Now, here's what is interesting about this little press release, which was held on October 18th, 2018. It was recorded in the lobby of one of the Toronto Police Detachments, and in the background was featured some large cold case posters with Barbara's face on it and some details and a request to call the cold case unit if you have any information. And while this was being filmed, a 63-year-old man named Charles Mustard had been asked to come down to the station to sign some documents. Now, what kind of documents? I have no idea. But he did arrive and he came into the station lobby just as they were filming. And you can actually see him wandering around in the background, looking at the posters and just kind of poking around as people do. But what Charles didn't realize is that investigators had reopened Barbara's case that August. And as part of that reopening, they decided, let's send these fingernail clippings over the to the DNA lab and maybe we'll get something. And they had gotten something. The DNA profile of one 63-year-old Charles Mustard just the guy they were hoping to see. During this second and much more real press conference, Sergeant Gallant went on to say that Charles had been 37 at the time of the murder and now, 25 years later, the boy who found his mother in their apartment murdered can have some answers. Although there will be a process for this case to work its way through the justice system, at the very least he can know that we never gave up. Now 63-year-old, at the time 37 years old, Charles William Mustard, was arrested and charged with her murder. Uh, he also mentioned that they had discovered that Charles and Barbara had been acquainted with each other, but he didn't elaborate on if Charles had been questioned back in 1993 or had ever been on their radar as a suspect before his DNA was discovered under Barbara's nails. But he did ask for two people known only as Dirk and Linda to come forward with information. You may hold the key to this investigation. You may not even know it. Investigators spoke with dozens of people in relation to this investigation. Perhaps they did not speak to you. 
Barb's cousin Herb also spoke briefly that I diligently hope that people who knew more about this come forward and assist in this investigation so that not only do we have a result, we have final closures in this matter, but we have a fair and just result. Up until recently, I thought cold cases was just something that happened in a TV series in the States. I'm so proud of you folks, all of you. This is Charles Mustard in October 2018 in the lobby of Toronto Police Headquarters where he was called under a ruse to sign documents. Investigators in the cold case unit had staged a fake news conference about the murder of Barbara Brodkin. Mustard was their prime suspect, unbeknownst to him. Detectives wanted to see how he would react to seeing photos of Brodkin, the single mother who was murdered 25 years earlier. The case never solved. I will be right back after these brief messages. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Charles Mustard was born and raised in Toronto and went to the University of Thunder Bay and got a degree in physical health and education with a Bachelor of Education. And then he went on to teach elementary school in Thornhill. He got married and had two children. He came from a rather wealthy background in the Forest Hills area. His dad had been a surgeon. However, he was also an alcoholic and pretty much absent. His mom died by suicide, but I'm not sure how old he was at the time. But then his life started to go off the rails in 1993 when he was convicted of 10 sexual assaults, sexual interference, and sexual exploitation of his own daughter and another family member. So after that, he lost his job teaching, as you would and should, so he went on to do odd jobs after his release. Now, I couldn't find if he actually got, like, actual jail time for that. Uh, I mean, I certainly would hope so. But both his children became estranged for hit from him, and his wife divorced him. Now, it's, it's really hard to follow his convictions. The court documents just say... Mr. Mustard has a criminal record which consists of convictions for 10 sexual assaults, sexual interference, and sexual exploitation dating from 1993 to 2007, 
with substantial sentences for crimes of violence. In 2007, he received a sentence of three years with pre-sentence custody credit of 26 months and three years probation for a number of sexual assaults. He has 12 convictions for crimes of violence against females. So it sounds like his life started to fall apart before 1993. But in 1993, when Barbara was murdered, he was working at a seafood restaurant, so had already given up teaching. So if he was already known to have sexually assaulted a child in 1993, I don't not, I'm not sure why his conviction wasn't until 2007. It just sounds like he had a bit of a past when it came to sexually assaulting young girls in his own family. His last conviction was in 2011 for theft under $5,000. But violent sex crimes, those will get you a DNA sample into the database for sure. By 2018, when he was arrested for Barbara's murder, he was living in subsidized housing and collecting disability supports from the Ontario government. And the morning after the press conference, Charles was arrested on his way to Casino Rama. But while waiting for trial, Charles wanted to be out and about. After all, he said he didn't even know Barbara, only that she looked kind of familiar. But he certainly hadn't killed her. So he went to court with his lawyer to ask for an interim release because of COVID. Everything in 2020 was about COVID. On March 15, 2020, he asked by teleconference for release while he waited for his trial from the Toronto South Detention Centre because of the impact of COVID and his current age and health. He claimed that he had been diagnosed as having borderline diabetes and receiving a diabetic diet. He has degenerative arthritis, hearing loss, and degenerative eyesight. He has no ability to socially distance himself from other inmates and staff in the institution. And if he was to be released, he planned on continuing on his disability and continued on in subsidized housing, all paid for by you, of course. Now listen to this from the hearing. The applicant relies on his affidavit of Dr. Aaron Orkin, physician and epidemiologist, whose opinions have been accepted in numerous bail applications and bail reviews that insufficient social distancing in incarcerated populations that have high incidence of chronic illnesses makes it extremely likely that COVID-19, a highly contagious virus that can lead to serious illness and death, will occur in those custodial facilities as a consequence of congregate living conditions. Recently, there have been a number of inmates who have tested positive for COVID-19 at the Toronto South Detention Centre. I am satisfied that the applicant has satisfied the primary ground. He has a history of compliance in appearing in court as required. He has been supervised in the past by the Toronto Bail Program without any non-compliance. He is a Canadian citizen and a lifelong resident of Ontario. In my view, at age 65, without financial resources other than potentially ODSP, if reinstated, he does not present a flight risk. While the applicant has a criminal record, the serious offenses occurred between 1993 and 2006. There is no evidence that the offense at issue was sexually motivated. Further, his past serious crimes were against female family members with whom he no longer has any contact. In consideration of the 14 years since he committed a serious offense and his history of compliance, When he had been charged with serious offenses, his continued detention is not necessary for the protection or the safety of the public. It is also important to bear in mind that there is no category of cases or charges that are exempt from bail provisions. The fact that someone is charged with murder is not a reason in itself to detain under the Terry ground. 
Mr. Mustard is an at-risk age group subject to the most serious consequences if he is exposed to the virus. The only method of avoidance where there is no vaccine or prophylactic is social distancing. Mr. Mustard presents what might be called a porous plan of release. He has no sureties. He has no fixed residence at present. He has no other viable release plan other than with the assistance of the Toronto Bail Supervision Program to supervise him and find him a place in shelter. Another congregate setting subject to the same COVID-19 virus transmission concerns. It is a setting where he may not fare any better. Indeed, he may be in some ways more exposed due to the constant movement of persons in and out of the shelters. Be that as it may, he will have a greater ability to socially distance himself if, as he deems necessary by freedom of movement, of which he has none in the present circumstances. On balance, in consideration of all the circumstances, I am satisfied that his release would not bring the administration of justice into disrepute. Mr. Mustard shall be released into the supervision of the Toronto Bail Supervision Program. So that was a thing. And I guess if you molest your own child and murder a woman for a bit of pot, you don't really pose a danger to anyone. And if you consider that while he was out and about, he had a life sentence hanging over his head, If you were facing a life behind bars, would you behave yourself or would you see it kind of as an all-you-can-eat buffet the night before your diet starts? Anyways, no one really knows what he was up to while he was waiting for his trial to start, but start it did and it was a bench trial, so he had opted not to have a jury decide his fate and left it up to the judge alone. Christopher Berry had told investigators back in 1993 that Barbara was feisty and kept her nails long and used them when they often fought, and described them as like razors. So it wasn't a stretch that she would have used them to fight with her attacker. Christopher had passed away in 2009, so he wasn't available to testify about it, but statements from his original interviews were used against Charles. Charles's ex-wife testified that on March 18, 1993, that weekend, they were still living together in Barrie, but he had left the house for a few days with no explanation of where he had gone. At the time, they were having some financial problems, so he figured he was going to cool off about it maybe or hopefully get a job. Stephen Burns, who is a former friend of Charles, testified that Charles had purchased weed from Barbara on a number of occasions. One of Charles's ex-girlfriends testified that he had come over one night with some jewelry and told him that he had done a bad thing and would be going away for a while. Now, this was also sometime in the spring of 1993. Although her testimony wasn't given as much weight as some of the other evidence, since the argument was made that he could have been referring to his sexual assaults that were happening around the same time. Charles also testified on his own behalf, saying that he was looking at the pictures of the at the police station of Barbara. He didn't recognize her, but thought she looked familiar. But after some probing from his own lawyer, he said that Barbara, quote, she was a very nice person. She was my friend, and he insisted that he didn't kill her. He did admit to buying weed from her, and the last time he had seen her, he had slathered up a big joint and shared it with her while he ta- while she talked about her mean ex-husband. Uh, And that was his explanation for why his DNA was found in her apartment. But he said Barbara was a very nice lady. I remember she was alive when I left. He also testified that he was not having any money issues at the time of her death and was offended by the insinuation that he had killed her for cash and weed. He was working at the seafood restaurant and he had money, uh, but he couldn't remember the name of the place or the name of his boss or anything about it. 
Uh, but it was the testimony about the DNA that really did him in. Forensic biologist Jennifer McLean testified about the DNA, saying that it was one trillion times more likely that the mixed sample they found under the nails of Barbara's, both of her hands came from Barbara and Charles, and sharing a joint would not have deposited the amount of DNA that was found under the nails of both of her hands, uh, but a fight for one's life, that would do it. On February 24th, 2023, Justice Brian O'Mara found Charles Mustard guilty of second-degree murder, claiming that um, him saying that he didn't recognize Barbara from the posters was a blatant and obvious lie, considering he said that he was his friend and had bought $50 of weed from her shortly before her murder. Uh, Even after the passage of so much time, you'd think it would be seared into his memory. Um, And all this, of course, ruined his credibility, making the judge reject most of his own testimony. At his sentencing hearing in March, victim impact statements were read and Zachary Hefner, Barbara's now 36-year-old son, pretty much the same age Charles had been when he killed his mother, said, quote, the moment I entered that door is my entire life changed. It took my six-year-old mind several minutes to fully take in and understand the horror of what I was looking at. But it finally came to the only answer. My mother was dead and the trauma and psychosocial effect from that night would remain with me for many years after. A life was brutally, cruelly and callously taken. The life of a single mother of a six-year-old child, she would do anything to support. The prosecutor asked the judge to consider that the killing of Barbara had been a callous act and a protracted attack, that he had a criminal history of violence and his advanced age should not be a mitigating factor when considering parole ineligibility. Uh, Before giving his sentence, Justice O'Mara asked if Charles wanted to say anything and he stood up, repeated that he had not killed Barbara and had worked his whole life without having any financial issues and wondered why Christopher Berry had never been charged instead of him. He ended his strange soliloquy saying that if that Barbara was his friend and he had talked to her the night before she died, saying, quote, I'll be killed in jail, but I'm not afraid to die. I am innocent. And he was given a life sentence with no parole for 15 years. He's going to be 83 when he's eligible to apply. And that was the solved murder of Barbara Brodkin. And this case gives me hope about solving cold cases, but it's really too bad that there is such a backlog in DNA testing and rape kits um, that so many of them don't get tested until the person is long gone. As they say, justice delayed is justice denied. Well, I'm going to be back again next week with another case. You know what to do in the meantime with your rates and reviews. Thank you so much for listening. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.